I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and let's open it together to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we would like you to borrow the copy that we have for you right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 187, page 187 of our copy of the Bible or Ruth chapter 1 in your copy. I was at a, a picnic uh, uh, earlier this week and uh, guess what everybody was eating? You wouldn't believe it. Hot dogs. I mean, hot dogs are just kind of an American thing. And there was an interesting article in USA Today on hot dogs. And here's what it said. If you can believe it, if you can believe this, Americans consume 14 billion hot dogs a year. That is enough hot dogs if placed end to end to go from here to the moon and back three times. you imagine that? We average, on average, 60 hot dogs a person a year. There are over 3,000 hot dog vendors in New York City. Did you know that? The most common topping for hot dogs, what do you think it is? Mustard. That's right. And do you know they have over 800 people a year who volunteer to drive the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile around the country? People really want to do this thing. Now, in reading the article, though, what became obvious is that if you really want to understand hot dogs, the most important thing is to know where they come from. The most important thing is to know kind of what goes into them. Hot dogs are 85% meat. I don't know if you want to know what kind. They're meat they can't use to do anything else with, along with some heart and some liver and some kidneys and some other things. And if they're not skinless, then the skin of the hot dog is made out of the intestine of the animal. We're going to lower hot dog consumption as a result of this message. And here's what it said. There was a nutritionist that said, hot dogs don't even belong in the meat group. They're really just a long, skinny piece of fat. In other words, what I told you was, if you really want to understand a hot dog, you've got to understand where it comes from. Now, you know, that's just not true with hot dogs. That's true with people. Knowing where a person comes from, knowing their lineage, their background, their ancestry, really does reveal about a lot about who a person is and why they are the way they are. Today, we're going to begin a new series of messages, all focusing on and centered around the life of David, the great Old Testament man of God, David. David, you may not realize it, is the only person in the Bible ever referred to as a person, a man or a woman after God's own heart. Twice the Bible calls him that. Do you realize that in the Old Testament there is more written about David, 66 chapters, not including the Psalms, than is written about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Elijah put together. In the New Testament, David is the most commonly referred to Old Testament person throughout the whole New Testament. David had some incredible successes. David had some awful failures. But through it all, David distinguished himself as a real man of God, as a real giant for God. And what we said earlier about hot dogs is very true of David. When we go back and we understand where David came from, when we go back and we look and see kind of what went into David in terms of his history and his ancestry and his lineage, when we look at the people who were in his family photo album, it tells us a lot about why David turned out to be the man of God that he did. So today we want to go way back and begin here in Ruth, with some of David's ancestors who at the time they were living never even knew the man's name. And I want you to see how this affected the life of David. Let's look right here in the book of Ruth. Remember, the book of Ruth is basically like an appendix 
on the book of Judges. The book of Judges is all about the spiritual condition in the nation of Israel between the time of Joshua and Samuel. 350 years from roughly 1350 B.C. to 1000 B.C. And what the book of Judges tells us is that during this time, nobody paid any attention to what God said. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Spiritual decline, uh, spiritual decadence ruled throughout all of Israel. And yet against this dark background, the book of Ruth is like a, a shining star on a moonless night. Because in the book, we meet some people who walked with God in spite of the spiritual decline going on all around them. So let's look and see. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Moab is right across the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River. In, uh, from Israel in the, in the modern-day country we call today Jordan. And because of the famine, Elimelech, we're going to find out was his name in a minute, verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, he took his wife and sons and he moved over to Moab. His, his name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Melion and Chilion. I've told you before, Melion and Chilion mean weakly and sickly. That's his kids' names. Verse 3, now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons, and they married Moabite women. One was named Orpah, and the other was named Ruth. And after they'd lived there about ten years, both weakly and sickly died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. When verse 5 comes to an end, we have uh, really a, a, the potential for a very sad ending to this story. Because we've got Naomi with no husband and no sons, and in this culture, that was a formula for disaster. Now, let me summarize what happens next. A word gets to Naomi that there's food back in Israel again, so she decides to go back to Bethlehem, and at first her two daughters, daughter-in-laws rather, set off to go with her, but she stops along the way and she says to him, hey, look, girls, you really shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. You need to stay here. You need to think of your own needs first. If we go back to Israel, there's no welfare system back there. There's no public assistance back there. Widows with no sons and husbands live a very poor and destitute life. And besides that, you're going to be foreigners in Israel. Israel is not foreigner friendly, girls. And the chance of you finding a husband back there is virtually zero. Do yourselves a favor, gals, and stay in Moab. And one of her daughter-in-laws, Orpah, said, okay, and look what Ruth did. Verse 14. And they wept again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, hey, look, Ruth, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. You go back with her. But Ruth replied, verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you, for where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said, okay, come on, no problem. And the way they went. Now, this was a very courageous thing that Ruth did. This was a very compassionate thing that Ruth did. She put the interests of her mother-in-law and the needs of her mother-in-law ahead of her own needs. 
And ahead of her, by doing this, lay a life of poverty and financial hardship. Ahead of her, lay a life of ostracism as a foreign woman in Israel. Ahead of her, lay a life of servitude as she cared for the needs of an aging mother-in-law. But Ruth voluntarily embraced all of this and said, I'm not going to desert my mother-in-law just to go take care of number one. Now, a lot of people would not have done this. I mean, you know how people feel about mother-in-laws, right? I saw a bumper sticker the other day. I love this bumper sticker. It said, in case of rapture, mother-in-law will take over the wheel. I love that bumper sticker. I thought it was hysterical. <laughs> I laughed halfway down the road. Uh, you know, that's how people feel. But this is not how Ruth felt. Ruth honored God in what she did. Because the Bible says uh, one of the Ten Commandments is what? Honor your father and your mother, and hey, mother-in-laws are included, and she did it. Here was a woman who decided, made a choice to honor God. Okay? Now, let's go on, because there's another character in the play here. Let's go to the end of the chapter, verse 22. So Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, and she arrived in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was beginning. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative... On her husband's side, a man of some standing in the city, a man named Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, I'm going to go out to the fields and I'm going to pick up leftover grain behind anyone who, in whose eyes I can find favor. So Naomi said to her, fine, go ahead. So she, Ruth, went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. You say, Lon, what's happening here? Well, gleaning was a cultural practice in Israel that God had set up to provide for the needs of poor people, destitute people, orphans, widows, people like Ruth, people like Naomi. Here's how it worked. Deuteronomy 24, you don't need to turn there, just listen. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. God said, when you are harvesting in your field and you drop some grain on the ground, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow to pick up. And your, the Lord your God will bless you in the work of your hand if you leave that there for them. Here's the deal. When you own the field and your harvesters went through the field, if they dropped some grain on the ground, God says, leave it there. Don't pick it up. And this way, people like Ruth could come and follow the harvesters through the field and pick up this grain that was laying on the ground and get enough grain to survive. And God says, if you will do that, if you will honor me in this way, he says to a landowner, I will honor you back and I will give you far more back than you ever left on the ground. You honor me and you watch. Now, not everybody in Israel did this. In fact, if you read in the Bible, you'll find many times God condemning people because they didn't do it, because they were greedy, because when they got done with a field, it looked like the locust plague had come through. But there was a guy named Boaz, a godly man, who made a decision to honor God and let people come glean in his field. Now watch what happens. Verse 3. So as it turned out, she, Ruth, found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. And then, just then, verse 4, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted his harvesters. And he said, the Lord be with you. And they said, the Lord bless you. And Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, uh, hey, um, who is that? Um, who, who's that over there? And they said, well, you know, she's the Moabite girl who came back from Moab with Naomi. You know, that's Ruth over there. And he, oh, okay. Now listen, it just so happened 
that Ruth ended up gleaning in the field of Boaz. And it just so happened that Boaz came out to check on the field on that particular day. And it just so happened that he got there right at the time that Ruth was in his field gleaning. And it just so happened that Boaz noticed Ruth. And when he noticed her, he went, va, 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 voom. You say, how do you say that in Hebrew? You say, va, 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 voom. Same thing. And it just so happened that Ruth noticed him. You see, folks, when God is in something, it's amazing what just happens. Well, let's finish the story. They fell in love. And you know what really got to Boaz, what really gripped his heart? It was not just that Ruth was pretty, but this man was also impressed with her character. See, he was impressed by her work ethic and her discipline, that this was not a woman afraid of hard work. Look what he says in verse 7. His foreman says to him in verse 7, She came here and asked if she could harvest behind us, glean behind us, and she went in the field, and she has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a very short rest in the shelter. This woman's been out here working hard, Boaz. That impressed him. He was also impressed with her loyalty and her devotion to her mother-in-law. Look down at verse 10. She says to him, Boaz, she says, well, why have I found such favor in your sight? And he says, verse 11, because I have been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and you left your mother and you left your homeland and you came to live with a people you didn't even know. All because you wanted to stick with her. That impressed him. And finally, he was impressed by this woman's love for God. Her commitment to God. Look at verse 12. May the Lord repay you, Boaz says, for what you've done, Ruth. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This man just didn't marry her because she was pretty, folks. He married her because she had character. He married her because she knew how to work hard and she was disciplined. He married her because she understood the meaning of the words devotion and commitment and loyalty and dedication. And because she had a spiritual commitment to the God of Israel. These were the things that impressed this man. And so, because he was a distant relative of her deceased husband, Sickly, that he was allowed to marry her. And he did. And they got married. That's so sweet, isn't it? Well, let's finish the story. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And then, verse 16, Naomi took the child and laid the child in her lap and cared for the child. And the women living in town said, hey, Naomi has a son. And they named this boy Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Ruth and Boaz, two people who both made decisions to honor God. She, by sticking with her mother-in-law. He, by leaving his field the way God told him to leave it, so people could glean in it. They met, they got married, and they set up a family where God was honored in that family. They had a son who honored God, who then had a son that honored God, who then had a son that honored God and became the greatest king in the history of Israel. And it's no accident. David did not arise in a spiritual vacuum. Nobody rubbed a lamp and the man of God, David, just popped out. David had a heritage. David had a history. David had a legacy that went all the way back to his great-grandmother and great-grandfather of people honoring God 
and people putting God first in their life. And if you want to know how David ended up the man he did, all you have to look at his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and grandmothers, and you'll see why David became the man that he was. Now, that's the end of the passage, but it leads us to ask the really important question, and the really important question is what? So what? So what? That's right. You know, I grew up with a Jewish mother, and as I've told you many times, I'm thinking about starting a, a support group called uh, Adult Survivors of Jewish Mothers. Because, you know, you just got to know them to understand that. If you've ever known them, you know what I'm talking about. My mother was the most superstitious woman I think I've ever met in my life. And, and she really believed that by being superstitious, she was ensuring that my life would be successful and good. And it was, it was, it was crazy. She tied, I remember she tied a little purple ribbon on my bed frame right up at the head of my bed because that was good luck. And when she gave the bed to Brendan and me after we were married, I'm a grown man now, she wouldn't give it to me until I swore I would never take the little purple ribbon off. Because if I did, she wasn't going to give me the bed. She was superstitious. She meant when you go in the house, she'd make you come out the house. You had to go in the same door that you came out. You couldn't go in one door and go out the other door. That's bad luck. You could not put a pocketbook on the bed. God help you if you ever put a pocketbook on the bed. That's bad luck. Opening an umbrella in a house? <laughs> Absolutely out of the question. Uh, how about walking under a ladder? How about the number 13? That was public enemy number one. I remember one time I got on a, um, an airplane with my mom and they had her seated in row 13. And I swear, I've never been so embarrassed in my whole life. They had to play musical chairs around the whole airplane because she would not sit in row 13. God help us if we ever saw a black cat anywhere. I mean, and one time I asked her about this. One time I said to her, uh, you know, Mom, you're just a little obsessive about this. I mean, what's the deal here? And she said, no, you don't understand. I want your life to be blessed. So I'm keeping good luck on your life. Well, you know what? I don't think there's a parent in the world or, or a single person who's planning to be a parent someday who doesn't want to do whatever it takes to be a blessing to their children, who doesn't want to make sure that their children, you know, grow up to be healthy, functional people. But is the way to do that by keeping every superstition that you can possibly keep? Is that the way we do this? No, I think the lesson of David and Boaz and Ruth, what that's telling us is it has nothing to do with keeping all these stupid superstitions, nor does it have anything to do with buying our children a car to drive to school or Doc Martens or Timberlands. I've got two teenagers who really believe that, you know, it has a lot to do with what we buy them. But that's not true. Just look at people who've been able to buy their children everything. Do they produce healthy, functional children? My goodness, look at the halves. You know, Pompadour King's in town here. Are these happy, functional people? Look at the Menendez brothers who killed their parents. They had everything. Look at Donald Trump and Elvis who had it all. I look at Prince Charles and all the other royal sickly cases they got over there. Those people had everything. Does this produce functional people? Of course it doesn't. Friends, the story of David and Ruth tells us that, that, that being a true blessing to our children and to our children's children and to the generations beyond has nothing to do with superstitions. It has nothing to do with material things that we give them, but it has everything to do with our walk with God. It has everything to do with our living an authentic Christian life in the sight of our children. It has everything to do with how much we choose 
to love God and how much we choose to obey His instructions in our lives. It has everything to do with the spiritual choices that you and I make in our lives today. That's what it depends on. I want you to turn to one other passage. Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you would. It's page 129 in our copy of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And you say, well, Lon, this is, uh, this is like the Ten Commandments. That's right. But I want you to notice something that God says here in the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 5, page 129. Look at verse 8, if you would. Verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below. Verse 9. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Watch. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children... For the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What is God trying to tell us here? God is trying to tell us, folks, that the way you and I live today has ramifications long after you and I are gone. That generations from now, our descendants are going to be feeling the impact of the choices that you and I make today, of the lifestyle that you and I live today. And God's promise here in Deuteronomy chapter 5 can either be a tremendous blessing or a tremendous curse depending upon the choices that you and I make. I mean, look here in the case of Ruth and Boaz and David. This was a huge blessing. Boaz and Ruth made choices to honor God and look at the way God four generations later was still honoring them back. And you know, that's just not a truth for Bible times. It works today. My wife Brenda, for example, on her father's side, can trace back five generations of people who made choices to love and honor and walk with God. Her great-grandfather was a circuit-riding brethren preacher in southern Pennsylvania who used to work on a farm and every Sunday ride around to churches sharing Christ. And they can trace generation after generation after generation on her father's side like that. On her mother's side, she still has a 92-year-old grandmother who prays for me and her and our family and this church every single day. Man, I considered it a blessing to marry into a family with a heritage like this. And God has honored that. You look at Brenda's parents, every one of their children is actively living for and walking with God today. Every one of Brenda's parents' grandchildren is actively walking with God and loving God today. They can trace seven generations of people loving and walking with God, all begun by people that today we only have little old black and white snapshots of these people. But because of choices they made, we're still appreciating and and getting the benefit seven generations later. And in Brenda's family, it's kind of like the Energizer Bunny. You know what I'm saying? The blessing just keeps going and going and going. This is what God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But you know, it can also be an incredible curse depending on the choices you make. I was flying back from San Francisco this week and I saw the movie on the plane, In Love and War. Have you seen the movie? It's all about uh, Ernest Hemingway and the love affair he had during World War I with this nurse named Agnes over in, uh, when he was stationed in Europe. It's a kind of a dramatization of a farewell to arms if you read that book. And if you know the story, he falls head over heels in love with this gal. He wants to marry her. And then all of a sudden, she, she decides she doesn't want to marry him. He, she hurts him so bad. He's angry. He's bitter. He's in a rage. He's just, yeah, he's just horrible. 
She changes her mind. She realizes she's made a mistake. She comes back to apologize and tell him she still loves him. But he's, he's got so much rage and so much bitterness and so much anger that there's just, he just can't work his way through it. And so it's the last time they ever saw each other. And friends, you know that rage and that anger and that refusal to forgive and that bitterness haunted him through four broken marriages and finally drove him to take his own life in 1961. And as I was sitting there watching that, I thought, you know what? It's not just that simple either. Because his granddaughter, as you well know, Margot, took her life last year. You say, is that an accident? Is that a coincidence? It could be. But you know what? It might also be Deuteronomy chapter 5, where this man set some things in motion that his granddaughter got a, a piece of. And look what happened. He was a curse to his granddaughter. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, I want to say to you that is there a lot at stake in your life when it comes to giving your life to God and making God first in your life, you bet. But it's not just your life we're talking about. We're talking about the lives of people that come generation after generation after you and the choices that you make today, whether choices to honor God or choices to live it your own way, is going to have enormous impact on people whose names you don't even know yet. We're not just talking about you. We're talking about people who one of these days, what you do today is going to have an enormous impact on their lives. And the best thing you could do for your children and your children's children is to give your life to Jesus Christ and make godly choices today. He said, well, Lon, what are some of these godly choices that we should make to be a blessing to our family? Good, I'd like to close by giving you four. Four things you think you can do as a parent or when you become a parent that will help you be a blessing to generations yet to come. Here they are. Number one. Ready? Stay married for life. Stay married for life. You know, folks, I have learned in the ministry there are a few times when a divorce really is best for the spiritual welfare of the people involved and for the family involved, but there are very few cases like that. There are some physical abuse, sexual abuse, incorrigible sexual sin. There are a few of those, and the Bible allows for those. But in, in irreconcilable differences in some of these other things, come on now. You say, but Lon, we are not compatible. You, you, you know, we, we just aren't. May I say something to you? Look here. Brenda and I have been married 23 years come June. We are totally, utterly incompatible. Completely. We don't agree on anything, and we never have. In 23 years. The reason we are still together is not because we are compatible. That is not why. The only reason we're still together is because when we got married, we made a commitment to one another that Jesus Christ was going to be the third partner in this marriage and that unto one another and unto Him we were making a commitment no matter what happened, divorce was not an option and we would figure out some way with God's help to work it out. That's the only reason we're still together. Listen, if divorce was an option, we'd have been divorced a long time ago. Brenda told me, Lon, I'd have divorced you in the first year if divorce was an option. And I'd have divorced you every year since. <laughs> well, not much to say after they say that to you. Don't kid yourself. You're not going to put two sinners who are self-directed and self-centered and self-driven under the same roof and get compatibility. It's a dream of Hollywood. Forget it. It doesn't exist. 
People don't stay together because they're compatible. They stay together because they're committed before Christ. And if you really want to be a blessing to your children and your children's children, make a commitment, you're going to work through problems, and you're going to stay together and intact. That's a blessing. And I know we've got some folks here who've been divorced and been through tough situations, and I want to say to you, we are committed to you, we love you, we are here for you, and we will be. Many of you are thinking about getting remarried, hoping that will happen one day. My advice to you is make sure you find a godly woman. Make sure you find a godly man. Make sure you make Jesus Christ a part of that and make sure this time it's for life. That's a blessing. Second of all, if you want to be a blessing to the generations after you, live an authentic Christian life in front of your family right now. I didn't say perfect. I said authentic. None of this, well, take a message. Tell them I'm not home. None of this calling into work sick when you're really going to play golf. Hey, kids have a cheese meter that is big as this room, and they can smell cheese a mile away. Don't give your kids cheese. Give them an authentic Christian life to model after. We were going up to the Orioles game a couple weeks ago, and I had my family in the car, and I told one of my boys, uh, uh, I don't have to go into a lot of detail, but I told one of my boys about something specific I wanted brought to the game. I said, now, I want you to go out, I want you to take it, I want you to put it in the car, and I want you to make sure it gets there. We're about two minutes away from the stadium, and he informs me that it's not in the car. I, I, I mean, I just, I was very uh, unhappy. I began speaking in animated tones. All right, I was yelling. I was yelling. And I, I was just going off at him. I mean, I was just like, I just couldn't believe it. And finally, in the back, my youngest son, Jonathan, who was sitting all the way in the back of the van, finally stood up and he said, All right, he said, I've had enough of this screaming. He said, I want everybody in this car to be quiet, and I am leading the family in prayer. So you know what we did? We all shut up. And he prayed for the family. And I felt absolutely awful. Here's my 11-year-old son praying for my family because I'm totally out of control. So after batting practice, I got everybody around and I said, all right, guys, come here. I really need to apologize. I'm sorry I went ballistic, you know. I mean, I, I need you all to forgive me. Do kids expect you to be perfect? No. But they do expect you to be authentic. If you make a mistake, they expect you to be honest and tell them and ask for forgiveness, just like you want them to do. Be authentic in front of your kids. Third, if you want to be a blessing to generations to come, make choices that honor God. Now, make choices that honor God. And, and you know what? Uh, if you don't know what to do in a situation, just look around and try to figure out what is the choice I can make here that will most honor God and do that. That's what you need to do. What will most honor God and that's what you do. And by making those kinds of choices, you will be a blessing to your children for years to come. Fourth and finally, be willing to give up rights, to be willing to forego privileges that you have in order to protect and promote the welfare of descendants that are yet to come. You say, what do you mean by that? Look, my wife is constantly reminding me that, that, the, that our children are always going to take things one step further than we ever take them. They're always going to go one step more than we go, and that we need to be careful to stay away from the edge, 
Because we might be able to walk right on the edge and not fall off, but the kids that we're raising are going to go to the edge and many of them are going to go right over. So the best thing to do is stay away from it. Hey, as a Christian, can I go to Las Vegas and gamble and, 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 uh, and not lose my salvation? Sure. But do I want to take the risk that I'm going to get my children involved in something that is addicting and could cost them their house and their livelihood and their family and their marriage? Do I want to take that risk? No. Hey, as a Christian, can I have HBO and Showtime and Cinemax in, come into my house on cable uh, and not lose my salvation? Sure. But do I want to take the risk that my children's first exposure to the incredibly powerful, addicting force of pornography? Do I want that first exposure to come in my living room of my own home as a Christian home? No. And when it comes to drinking and smoking and so many other things, friends, the reason Brenda and I don't do a lot of things is not because we're prudes and not because we're legalists, but because we are trying to promote and protect the spiritual well-being of our children and our children's children and generations to come. And we can't go right to the edge and promote the spiritual welfare of those generations. Some of those generations are going to go over the edge if that's where we lead them. And therefore, there's some things that we have the right to do, and we know we have the right to do, but we choose not to do because we've got a bigger goal than whether we can do what we feel like. Our goal is to protect and promote the welfare of generations to come. Four things you can do to be a blessing to your children's children. You say, but Lon, what if I didn't come from a family like Brenda? I mean, what if I didn't have a, what if I don't have a godly heritage? Well, folks, I didn't. But you know what? I made a decision when I was a brand new Christian that, that, that I could break that cycle because of what Jesus Christ had done in my life. That maybe I didn't come from a godly heritage, but I could start a godly heritage. I could be the first one in a line. I could be the first one in a family that set up a godly heritage for people yet to come. And if you didn't come from a godly heritage, that's okay. If you know Jesus Christ, start one. Be a Boaz. Be a Ruth. Let it start with you. That's good. So that one of these days when you're gone and all your descendants have is a picture in some book, some scrapbook somewhere in terms of who and what you are, that they'll hear their parents and their grandparents telling about choices you made and the way you lived your life and how the blessing of God is on the family today because of choices you made. And they'll sit there and they'll call your name blessed. Isn't that what you want from your descendants Instead of them calling your name cursed. Well, you can do it. Jesus Christ will break the cycle and you can be a Boaz and a Ruth if you want to be. And may God help you and me and all of us to make that our passion and our goal in life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us today that the choices we make in our world not only affect our lives, but there are people whose names we don't even know yet, whose lives are going to be majorly affected by what we do. And Father, I want to pray and ask you to grip our hearts with an appreciation for this truth and help us take this truth and turn it into a blessing, not a curse, by making good choices, godly choices in our lives, by making choices that honor God, and put God first. So, Father, 
change the way we live, change the way we run our families, change our goals in life because of the Word of God to our hearts this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.